verse 36, we return back to the book of Acts today. You may remember from the last sermon on Acts that we covered in, in chapter 15, the summoning of Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to give account for accusations that they were teaching wrong doctrines. And these accusations came from men who had followed them throughout Galatia, then back to the church at Antioch, all the while telling new converts at the churches Paul and Barnabas had established that Christians still had to observe Jewish practices in order to please the Lord. And so the good news from chapter 15 was that the Jerusalem Council upheld what Paul and Barnabas had been teaching, namely that our salvation is by the grace of God alone, and had sent them back to Antioch with their blessing. So after a period of time back at Antioch, verse 36 picks up this action. If you would, let's stand as we read God's holy and inspired word. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit our brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word in, in this section of the book of Acts. Thank you that you directed Luke to record these events for us that we might have even today an understanding of how your gospel went out amongst the Gentiles through the area of Galatia and Phrygia and into Macedonia. Thank you, Lord, for the way that uh, you worked miraculously in bringing the truth throughout the world. I pray that that would be a truth that we treasure today as we listen to it and hear it and apply it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you may remember that when Paul and Barnabas first set sail to Asia Minor to share the gospel, that they had taken Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. After some difficult experiences on the island of Cyprus, John Mark decided to return home rather than to continue on to Galatia. But Paul 
He didn't forget that incident. And so when it was decided as a time to go back to visit those churches that had been established by him and Barnabas alone, well, he reacted strongly to Barnabas's determination to take Mark with them. You can easily envision the scene, probably. Paul wants to go back and check on the churches to whom he had sent the letter of Galatians. How were they faring after the incident with the Judaizers? Are they healthy? Are they being persecuted? Wouldn't they be encouraged to hear about the letter from the Jerusalem Council? Do they have any more doctrinal issues or concerns? Were they encouraged by his letter? What were they, how were they faring? And, and could they go on beyond those churches and, and spread the gospel even further north? Now, it was natural to ask Barnabas, his co-laborer, to return with him to view the work. And it had been a few years since they had been there, and wouldn't it be encouraging for the two of them, especially, to see the harvest of their labors? But Barnabas, you know, he remembers how they started the last time. There was a, it was a trio that went, and Mark had been with them. And, and Barnabas, family, very obvious and understandable, suggests that they take Mark again with them to give him a second chance. And verse 38 says, Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. And I, I imagine that the conversation went like, Barnabas, I do not think it's a good idea to take Mark to the very idea, uh, place that made him turn back the first time. Remember what happened in Cyprus? Remember that young girl? Remember, remember the scary aspects of it? Remember the threats that began to take place? Especially as you and I left the island of Cyprus and we went north and, and now Mark left us at that moment? We cannot afford that to happen again. Let's wait until he grows up a little. That's what I imagine Paul saying. And I imagine Barnabas not satisfied with that answer. It's been a few years, Paul. You've seen the growth of Mark. Everybody deserves a second chance, and you of all people should understand that. I've had the opportunity to talk to him. He understands how he put us in a bind last time. The hard work has already been done. The churches are there. This... This should be a, an easier trip. Let's allow Mark to see what we did because he can be helpful to us. He'll be useful to us. Right? Those, that's how the conversation would be with us. But however it went and whatever the points were made, verse 39 says that there was a sharp disagreement between them to the point that they separated from one another. And if you've been with us through the entirety of Acts so far, you know that this is a big deal. It's a big deal. Barnabas was the first person to support Paul at Jerusalem. Barnabas had been a co-elder with Paul at Antioch for years. Had gone on the first missionary journey with him. They'd gone down together in the midst of that difficult time where they weren't sure what was going to happen down at Jerusalem. They went to the council. And then they return back together for years, working in the trenches, watching God time after time work mightily. And the, this moment is the end of Paul and Barnabas traveling together. From this point forward, it will be Paul and Silas and the later addition of men like Luke and Timothy. And I don't know who's to blame for the inability to agree. Perhaps they were both right on some parts. 
No one can rightly blame Barnabas for wanting to give his cousin a second chance, nor can we fault Paul for fearing to trust him again. What we do know is that sharp disagreement between believers is rarely good, simply because we know from James 4.1 that conflict ultimately comes from the flesh. For as James writes, what causes quarrels and, and what causes fights among you is it not this, it the passions at war within you. This can be from one person or both in a quarrel, whether there's a disagreement. Wherever there is a disagreement, there's at least one, if not both, parties in error, and it can be an error of judgment, it can be an error of knowledge, an error of behavior, whatever it may be. We don't know. Was Barnabas too subjective? Was he biased with regard to John Mark? Was Paul too stubborn? I don't know. But in leaving Paul, Barnabas removed himself from the forefront of God's activity in the world outside of Israel. And in leaving Barnabas, Paul parted company with a man whom he owed the most. Now I find it telling that given Luke's tendency to mention the Holy Spirit's leading in every incident of Acts, including what we see in the following verses, that there's conspicuously missing from this account any mention that Paul and Barnabas prayed over the situation or sought wisdom in their decision. And yet as bad as their failure to agree may have been, God has always remained sovereign and was glorified in the circumstances. He used the separation to increase the fruitfulness and service, actually, of both men. Moreover, as big an encouragement as Barnabas was, actually Silas brought some unique and important skills to the new partnership. Because Silas was a Roman citizen. He spoke Greek. He he served as Paul's secretary. These are all vital skills for work among the Gentiles in the Roman colonies that they were soon to visit. And so we read at the very end of chapter 15 that Paul and Silas went then through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And there they met Timothy, who was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but whose father was a Greek, well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Timothy would become, will become Paul's right-hand man. And what we read next might surprise you if you look again at verse 3 of chapter 16. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. That passage may surprise you, given the whole controversy that took place in Jerusalem just the chapter before, right, in chapter 15. The Judaizers had accused them of saying that people didn't need to be circumcised. And so Paul and and Barnabas went down and, and said, you know, circumcision doesn't save you. What we've been proclaiming to them is is a salvation, a message of salvation by grace alone, not by the works of practices of Jewish tradition and, and what God has commanded in this. And it's been replaced by baptism. And we don't have all of the conversation that took place in chapter 15. We don't know all that was said at the council. But what we do know is what came out of it is the agreement with Paul. And then we read the letter of Galatians and we see how strongly Paul rebukes those who require circumcision as part of pleasing the Lord. And so what we need to do is read this verse here in the context of our study of Christian liberty from last month 
Well, Paul will fight viciously any claim that circumcision is necessary for salvation. He is yet willing to circumcise Timothy so that Timothy will not be a stumbling block to those in Galatia and beyond. Now, why would, why would that be the case? Why would he be a stumbling block? Well, if you have a good memory for details, you may remember from last month, two months ago, actually, in Galatians 2, that Paul brought Titus, an uncircumcised Greek, to the apostles at Jerusalem in chapter 15. And that he brought him as an example of the mission to the Gentiles. But Titus was not circumcised. Why is Timothy circumcised? What's the difference? Well, according to chapter 16, 1, Timothy lives in Galatia, and the Jews there knew that his father was a Greek, but that his mother was a Jewess. And according to Jewish culture, one was a Jew by birth from the mother. Thus, the fact that Timothy's mother was a Jewess meant that Timothy was culturally a Jew not a Gentile. And so for Timothy, a Jew, as opposed to Titus, for Timothy, to remain uncircumcised would have been a a circumcised block, no, a stumbling block for many of the Jewish converts who were having a hard enough time accepting the non-circumcision of the Gentiles. What you have to ask yourself is this. Did Timothy have to be circumcised? What's the answer? No. He did not have to be circumcised. Is circumcision a requirement of salvation? No. But remember that Paul says circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing in Christ. And since the law of love superseded Timothy's liberty in that situation, in order not to hinder the spread of the gospel in Galatia, Timothy volunteers to be circumcised. And then in the final portion of the passage, we read how after visiting the churches in Galatia, Paul had intended to go into the province of Asia. This is not the continent, by the way, of Asia. So if you were thinking things like China and so on, no. This is not the continent of Asia, but rather the Roman province of Asia, which was directly west of the province of Galatia. And in Asia were many of the cities that are mentioned in the first chapters of Revelation. Cities like Ephesus, and Sardis, and Pergamum, and Smyrna. Those will be cities that will be visited later. Looking at verse 6, we read that they were going through this region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia at this time. We don't know what Luke means when he writes having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Potentially, it means that through the prophetic word in Galatia, Paul and Silas were told not to go into Asia. Instead, they went through the small region of Phrygia, which was between Galatia uh, Galatia and Asia. And essentially, they went around Asia on the north side, all the way over to Mysia, which was on the other side of the Asian province. And from there, they could have either gone north into Bithynia, which is where Paul was interested in going. This is all kind of modern Turkey area. They could have gone north into Bithynia or go south down the Troas, which was a, a port city on the Aegean Sea. You may recognize its Greek name. How many of you have heard of the name Troy? This is Troas, Troy. 
Of course, the Troy of such stories like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey or the accounts of the Trojan Wars was a much different city than in Paul's time. It was still, though, a large and important city. In fact, the emperors Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and later Constantine, all at one point in time during their empire and rule, proposed moving the capital from Rome to Troas. And the importance of the city was due to its location. If you controlled this city, which, like I said, is a port on the Aegean Sea, what you, what you controlled was the Mediterranean, the Aegean, and the Black Sea. And this area right there is a boundary between the continents of Asia and Europe. So what made Paul and Silas go to Troas rather than to Bithynia? Luke says that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go to Bithynia. And again, we don't know fully what that means. Some... Some think that may be saying that God providentially hindered them through something like an illness. Others think maybe they heard again through prophetic word. Whatever the case, I do want to note that Luke here says the spirit of Jesus, which is parallel to the earlier account of saying hindered by the spirit. In this this section right here, the spirit of Jesus is a great Trinitarian passage, right? So we have Paul, we have Silas, now we have Timothy and at least Luke, all waiting for direction for us, because you'll notice in verse 10 how we read, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So there's a, there's a very noticeable change in pronouns up until this point. In the first 15 chapters, Luke has always been using third-person pronouns, they, he, and so on. But now it's we and us. So this is most likely the place where Luke joined Paul for the rest of, of the accounts of Acts. So how did they know to move on to Macedonia, which involved crossing the Aegean Sea? In this case, Paul had a vision. And again, not necessary to fully understand how Paul received the vision, whether it was a dream or while awake one evening, just we need, and we don't need to fully understand how the group was hindered from going to Asia or Bithynia, but what we see in all these examples, Paul parting from Barnabas, Paul circumcising Timothy, Paul and Silas determining to go to Macedonia rather than Bithynia, they are all illustrations of God's providence working through and sometimes against our decisions. Now I know in your own life, I hope we can all agree that God is sovereign. Isn't that, for example, the claim by Job where we read in in Job chapter 42 that he said to the Lord, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. I've uttered what I did not understand, things that were too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And it's our failing too sometimes. We utter things that we don't understand, particularly things that limit God's sovereignty and control over things in our lives Because we don't like what an omnipotent and omniscient God implies about us. If God wasn't in control, though, he would not be God, right? He's not required to seek anyone's permission for doing what he pleases. And I didn't grant God permission to make me a Californian. Paul didn't get a vote when it came to Asia or Bithynia or Macedonia. But on the contrary, God's sovereignty is completely in accord with his own perfect will. 
And I'm thankful for that because unlike God, I don't know what is best or perfect. And just like Job, when I try to speak on things which I don't know from the end or from the beginning, I often utter things that I don't understand. And God has to correct me somehow. I don't know the end from the beginning. I don't know how to think from a mind that is untainted by sin. I am finite and sinful and self-concerned. I'm actually happy that God is sovereign and not limited in all of those ways. And it means he's able to do just what he promises to do. And that thought is certainly comforting, right, to somebody like a Joseph, as we read in Genesis 50. Am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So when Joseph had to process why God allowed him to be sold into slavery, be mistreated by Potiphar, unjustly sent to jail, he came to the conclusion that God is in control and he could trust in that. Are we free? Yes, we are free. But there are limits to our freedom. Can we frustrate God's purposes? No. Can we try? Absolutely. But our freedom is ultimately limited by his plan, his purpose, his sovereignty. We cannot do anything outside of his will. So does human free will have any real meaning if we can't frustrate God? Or does God write the script and we just live it? Did God make Paul separate from Barnabas? If you were to ask the average person to define free will, they'd probably say it's the ability to make choices without any prior prejudice or coercion. But do we ever make choices like that? Do we ever make perfectly neutral, spontaneous decisions without any motive? The Bible says no. In fact, it says that what defines an act as evil or as good is the motivation behind it. And so God's involvement in Joseph's dilemma was good. His brother's involvement was evil. Why? Because the brothers acted out of an evil motivation. Their decision was neither spontaneous nor neutral. They were jealous of Joseph. Their decision to sell him was prompted by that jealousy. Is it wrong to injure a man? Yes. If your intent is evil, does God ever condone injuring another? Yes. Eye for an eye, the concept of just punishment, the death penalty... Yes, but he does not condone murder. What is the difference? A motive. Paul's separation from Barnabas came about after sharp disagreement. And as I suggested earlier, likely tainted by impure motives, potential biases, stubbornness. But God intended good out of that action. Paul went into Europe with the perfect partner, Greek-speaking Roman citizen Silas. He picked up Timothy and Luke along the way. Barnabas returned to Cyprus with Mark, did additional ministry. And then later we read this comment in 2 Timothy 4. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. While Paul was traveling with Silas and the others, Mark was maturing in his faith and eventually was reunited with Paul. Even more interesting is the comment in Colossians 4, where he says there, Aristarchus and Mark were at that time the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Our daily lives are marked by a war of motives. As Paul writes in Romans, he desired to be free of sin. He longed to take his mind captive for Christ. At the same time, his old sin nature was active, and sometimes he chose sin. Because his desire for sin outweighed his desire for godliness. And I don't know what caused that disagreement with Barnabas, nor do I know exactly why. 
Paul wanted to go to Asia or Bithynia, his motives were probably mostly good. Sometimes God allows us to move forward with our decisions and sometimes he prevents us. But what he does allow is always for his glory. So to say that we are free is to say that we are free, yes, to choose what our strongest desire is always within the limitations of God's sovereignty and ultimately all for his glory. And the amazing thing is that he actually desires to glorify himself to us, to you and me. He desires for us to see the incomparable riches of his grace. That's amazing. Some of you may be trying to figure out God's providence right now in your life. Maybe you've had a falling out with someone similar to Paul and Barnabas. Perhaps you've made decisions long ago and facing consequences now. Joseph's brothers, for example, had regret over what they had done to their younger brother. I certainly know the keen guilt they felt later, according to Genesis 42. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Nobody brought it up. Nobody brought it up to them. But they interpreted this circumstance that they were facing when they went to ask person they didn't know was Joseph for grain for their family and would begin to kind of unfold wrongly, right? Interpreting that, they they went back in their lives and says, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, did I tell you not to sin against the boy? This is so many years later, and you could see how it's probably, to one degree or another, sat with all of those brothers, especially the older ones, like a Reuben who looks back and says, I, I, I didn't lead. I didn't speak up. I didn't stand against my brothers. Look what we did. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And what a surprising lesson in God's grace to hear how their sin had been turned into God's, by God's providence into a result that was good. And so I want to encourage you this morning that the same is true of you. The fact that God works even through our sin doesn't excuse our sin. You may have things in the past that you regret, which you should confess and repent from. It may require you to reconcile with someone, but the great confidence that you can have is that God's plan and purpose is not compromised by your sin. You have not broken something irreparably. Perhaps some of you identify more with Paul and Silas's experience of God forbidding them from entering Asia or Bithynia. Some of you may feel like the doors of opportunity keep closing upon you despite your good intentions, your good motives. Perhaps you're struggling with finding a job. Perhaps you've been praying for some time for a spouse. Perhaps you keep seeking to minister in some way or in some area that remains closed to you. And it's so tempting, isn't it, to begin to nurse the thought in your frustration that God is simply against us, that he doesn't care for us. Nothing happens by chance. There are no lucky events, no unlucky events. There's No source of events, however surprising or random they may seem to us, than the will of the Almighty God who works all things out according to the counsel of his will, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. Even Satan and the other fallen angels are subject to the divine will of God. As we see in the book of Job, there will certainly be times in your life 
when you have a good motive like Paul, you want to minister to Asia, but it doesn't match God's will. You want to do something, that next step in your life, but it just doesn't seem to happen. What do you do? Since it's unlikely that God will appear to you in a vision like he did Paul. Well, as an example of, of wisdom, consider Paul's desire to visit the church at Rome. In Romans 1, verse 8, we read, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow, look at this part, somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You hear that? I keep praying that I can come. Somehow it just doesn't, it doesn't happen. Maybe right, maybe this time. At last, for I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be aware, unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as from the rest of the Gentiles. So he's, he's been longing for some time to visit the Roman church. All good motives. Wanted to edify, encourage the believers there, but God prevented Paul from going to Rome. Why? He didn't know. So what did he do next? He prayed. He submitted himself to God's sovereign will. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He may have been hindered, but when God was ready, he was ready. And while he waited for God's timing, he wasn't anxious. He kept ministering. He kept writing. He kept praying. When we dwell in the knowledge of God's word and we trust in his timing, God has promised us peace. Philippians 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And he also wrote in Colossians 3, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. How? By letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think one of the key things that we need to understand, if we're in a situation like a Paul and a Silas and the others, if you want to avoid the anxiety that comes from a lack of purpose or direction of meaning or hindered purpose, even in the midst of good motives, do you want to be a better discerner of God's plan and purpose when it comes to decisions of life? Do you want to be content and at peace when it seems that God keeps frustrating your well-intentioned plans? Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Pray, wait, be anxious about nothing, rejoice in all things. According to the Heidelberg Catechism, question 28, we read, why should we study providence? Why should we remind ourselves that God's sovereign, hindrance from Asia, hindrance from Bithynia, what will come out of Paul's separation from Barnabas? Why should we study God's providence and remind ourselves that he is in control and he's not surprised? And that he has a plan and a purpose. What good will it do? The answer is that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. And for those things in the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father 
that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Did you make bad decisions in the past? Confess them, repent, reconcile, but know that you cannot frustrate God's good purposes. Has God closed a door somewhere for you? Then be patient, seek him in prayer, and in his word, keep seeking his kingdom, praying for wisdom, stepping forth in faith, rejoicing. God is good. God is good. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word in in this area of Acts where it seems like it's just a string of of factual narrative and events that took place. We can pull important things from even this, a disagreement here, a hindrance and a prevention of going into a region there. Father, all a a reminder that we are under your sovereign hand. Lord God, nothing surprises you. Nothing frustrates you. You desire what is good for us, Lord. I I know that there are people here that are wondering about God's decision for them with their work, with their schooling, with a spouse, maybe with illness in them or in a family member. Father, I pray that they would remember the goodness of providence. Lord, you see ahead. That's what that word means. You see ahead and you have a plan and a purpose. Lord, you love us. You've called us to to do good things from before we were ever born. And, And Father, I just pray that we wouldn't get caught up in the stresses and the anxieties of the moment when we can't figure out what you're doing. And that, Lord, we would wait, even as Paul did, as he desired to see Rome and the people there at the church. Father, encourage us by your word this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.